what the what we mean by tests, what we're doing here in this book of First John, um, why we care, etc. What have we been doing? Sure. Okay. So we've been going over the tests of the faith. Um, the first three are: Do you walk in the light or in the darkness? Do you agree with God about your sin, and do you submit to God's commandments like Christ did? And so, pretty much just testing to see if your faith is genuine. Absolutely. So John is presenting numerous tests throughout this book, and he kind of repeats them going through a cyclical style, kind of going over the same topics again and again, diving just a bit deeper into it each and every time. This week, he dives into what he may be most well known for. John was once called the Apostle of Love. And I want to open with this question tonight, and I feel it's an appropriate question to begin with. And allow me to divorce it from a romantic context just for the time being. When have you experienced true love? In a human sense, specifically. And what has that felt like? What has it felt like to receive and be the recipient of genuine, self-sacrificing love? I'd say... Say, um, uh, it feels fulfilling. Okay. Fulfilling. What else? Yeah. Feels like you're not alone. Not alone. Absolutely. Other thoughts? It's always if you cared for. Yes. Perhaps a better way to phrase it, kind of in the flip side, how does it differ from when you feel like someone's disingenuously loving you or kind of putting on a front and it's not real? How, does, how do those things differ? Do you... Okay. Doesn't feel like an obligation. Doesn't feel like an obligation. Okay. What's it feel like when somebody's faking it and putting on a front? It makes you feel empty. Okay. Why? Um, just probably because like, why don't they actually love me? Like, why don't they actually feel that for me? Okay. And usually they're like getting something. They're trying to manipulate you or get something from it. They're not just doing it for the sake of love. Absolutely. There is a, I'm sorry, did I miss? Yeah. Uh, I was just bouncing off what she yeah. said. It makes me feel like just really cautious and kind of like I always have to be on my guard or something. Yeah, so guard. sucked in. But Absolutely. There's a sense in which when you experience genuine love, you feel like you can open up and be vulnerable and not so guard it. Um, there is a old marriage proverb which says something old, something new, something borrowed something blue and a sixpence in her shoe. Some of you may have heard that and you know you try to incorporate those different things into a wedding ceremony. This provides actually a really decent little outline for this passage in 1 John. We're going to be going through 1 John chapter 2 verses 7 through 11. So we're going to look at love as something old, love as something new, and then love as a way of life. That's kind of the outline we're going to be following here. As I said before, John was once called the Apostle of Love, and certainly you can see his passion for people throughout this book. He uses the word beloved to describe the people in this book rather frequently at different places. But John was not always as dedicated to this ideal as we see him when he's writing this epistle. 
That was not always John's defining characteristic. Mark 3.17. John was originally a man whose dominant characteristic was being powerful, outspoken, and very intense as a person. Mark 3.17. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges? Boanerges. Boanerges. That, uh, that is sons of thunder. So he was originally described by Jesus as a son of thunder. That's his defining characteristic as being just <coughs> outspoken and powerful. Luke 9, 45 through 50. Many people throughout church history have split into different groups, um, different denominations and such over very trivial things. People get bent out of shape over the tiniest of little things, even when they agree on a lot of things. And the very first person to start that sort of trend is John, Luke 9, 49 through 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So this is somebody who's stopping people from preaching the name of Jesus because they're not kind of hanging around together. Not a super loving, self-sacrificial act so far. And perhaps the pinnacle of John's rebuke for not being loving is found in a couple verses later, Luke 9, 54 through 55. Uh, and when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. So this son of thunder wanted something more than thunder to come down from heaven. He wanted, like when Christ was not received well by these people, he was like, let's burn them. Not a very loving style. You know, you have somebody who's intense, outspoken, defining characteristics as being kind of just rash with your words, is divisive, given to denominationalism and schisms within the church. And then third, somebody who is readily happy to call down fire from heaven and consume an entire city because they didn't accept Christ. So not the author that you would expect to lecture people on love. Not at all. But we see that as John matures in his faith, he has quite a bit of change in this perspective. So what do you think, I, mean, I this is not like a right and wrong question, what do you think happened over John's life? What changed? This is not describing somebody who is especially loving. What happened to transform this man? He was already following Jesus. What, what changed for him, do you think? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Other thoughts? If any. Yeah. She basically just said what I was going to say. Yeah. I'm going to say. I'll say that, um, that because he is known near the end of um, his time with Christ as the one that Christ loved, as, you know, having a closer relationship yeah. with Christ as he grew closer to Christ. And, no, obviously, the more you're going to be like the person, the people you're around, the people you love, the people you want to be like. And so um, I'm sure that a lot of that rubs off on him. That's true. I hadn't thought of that. There was that intimacy at the <coughs> last, last Supper where John is reclining on Jesus himself, and you know, there's a special connection with him and two other disciples that is not found in the other three. So perhaps that intimacy with Christ really um, changed his perspective on love. That's absolutely a possibility.
Now, look back into this passage, the verse before it. How did we finish <coughs> off last time? How, like verse, verse 6, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. How did we interpret that verse? What, what did we describe that as? talked about with like you know keeping keeping the commands of Christ is um, like if you go back to Greek was like guarding it as something very precious and um, you know and so living like Jesus did Jesus didn't live in a, a legalistic way it was very much for the glory of his father and you know and so through that like his his life was an expression of love for God Himself, mm-hmm. and and seeing His sin, not Jesus' sin, but like you know, us seeing our sin as um, as an offense to to God because that's what it is, um, and looking at it like God sees it and having that kind of break your heart in that way. But living as Jesus did in the way of you know, we're not under the law anymore, but your your life is there to glorify God, and so treating it that way. Absolutely. So we, we went, you know, it's general, John with these general broad sweeping statements once again. Keep the commandments kind of thing. Then he starts to narrow down. He gives a little flesh and bones to this illustration. He says, do it like Christ did it. And now he moves in this section to the absolute pinnacle command that we are given. Hence the discourse from here to verse 11 on love. So when he's talking about commands that we're supposed to keep, what Jesus embodied, this is the pinnacle of what Jesus embodied. Verse 7. Dear friends, I am not writing to writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Another translation begins that word, uh, that verse with beloved. And John was quick to use this emotionally laden term to describe the people he's writing to. I wanted to pause like right after this first word to ask why is it so difficult or why do we seem to have a barrier to expressing our love to other people? I think a lot of us in this room have great amounts of love to other people in here, but yet we find it very difficult to express that. Yet John is jumping right that he wastes no time in expressing his true feelings towards these people. Why do you feel that it's so hard for us to get beyond that wall of sharing verbally expressing our love to other people? Yes, Robbie. I think in a way it's, it, it is could be cultural because we are always taught like there is you need to be a little private about yourself okay. around other people. Especially if you don't know them, you know. I think in some ways we're both socially awkward and spiritually awkward. Mm-hmm. So, and like Robbie said, like we are raised in a way to like hold, kind of like do the exact opposite of what Proverbs says and hide our feelings and hide our love so that we don't have open rebuke. We certainly hide behind a wall of sarcasm and jokes, that is assured, yes. So I think like when you openly show love for somebody, um, like first of all you might like wonder how it would be taken. 
yeah. something. So uh, I think as well when you sh- openly show love for somebody, there's also a concern of like, for me, this is just me. I don't know if anybody else understands this, but there's a fear of like commitment. Like now that I've loved this person, I have to love them every time I see them. Because <laughs> um, now you're setting like a standard. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. And so that's, that's been something that I've had to sort of overcome for myself. Or at least I'm probably working on overcoming, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And then um, I think lastly, um, like energy levels, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to love people. Absolutely. You know? So. Yeah. Um, I know that, like, like there's in culturally, just like in this day and age, America is one of the hardest places to be a Christian, like a devout Christian, because everywhere you turn, somebody has something to say about it. And so we've just learned to yeah. hide it and you know, the only time we express it is in a setting like this because this is the only place we feel, you know, accepted. Right. And it's not necessarily because of us, it's just other people that have unfortunately made it very hard mm-hmm. for, you know, actual, for people who actually want to go out and love and out in the world. Other people have made it very hard for us to do that. Absolutely. And I want to be clear that, and, and John's <coughs> going to come back to this, and he, he goes in cycles again. Love, when we're describing it, is not just words. He says love not in you know, word and talk, but in deed and truth later in the book. This is very much an action-oriented term. But with that love and that action should, too, come the emotion of passion. I mean, I, I didn't include it, but you think of the church in Revelation where Christ said, I mean, they wouldn't deal with false teaching. They loved people in that they... They really kept a tight ship. They loved in truth. But was there any emotion behind it? No, they were just going through the motion. So I want to be clear that when I say love, we are really primarily referring to action. But if you just have dead orthodoxy, just going through the motions, doing it all without any flair, passion, and energy for the people you're loving, then you have to wonder how fruitful you really are being in that same category. And John was quick to express his love for those people. Did he love an action towards these people? Dedicate his life to them? Absolutely. But he was also quick to express verbally and in written form his love to them. So love is defined as an old commandment. Love is defined as an old commandment here. And we're found, again, this book is rooted in a context of him fighting Gnosticism. These are people that are coming along and saying, we have a new path to God, a new route to fellowship with him. And so he's saying, you know what? Forget it. This, this whole way to God is through something that is very old. You're trying to be cute and ingenuitive. And I'm telling you that the very oldest of commandments back in the very start of Judaism is what is still required today. There's nothing new. As a matter of fact, um, many heresies and false teachings come when people try to reinvent the wheel. Most false teaching comes when people say, I have a new revelation from God. I have new insights. It's the same idea. We find that you have plenty of people in today who say, I have new insights on how to get to God. That's what the Gnostics were saying as well. And John is saying, stop it. Just go back to the very beginning and you will find the truth. Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.8. The fundamentals of knowing God have been the same from the beginning. Deuteronomy 6.5. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. 
Leviticus 1918. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Brotherly love was a part of the original message which had come to them, and John was not now inventing it. It was not an innovation such as the heretics claim to teach. It was old as the gospel itself. So both in their Jewish roots it was old, and as well as when they became Christians, they had been under that command for a long time as well. So we're supposed to love people to the best of our capabilities and abilities, but the law says to love others as you would love yourself. Notice that in that passage it says, the requirement of the law is to love others as you would love yourself, which is a very key difference going forward in this passage. Jesus said that the law and the prophets hang on, you know, those two commandments, love God, love others. Why is it to you that love will fulfill the entire law? Why is that? How can love fulfill all the commands of the law? God is love, so if you walk in love, you will be following him. Okay, absolutely. Other thoughts, yeah. defined in First Corinthians 13 that if you go through the list it carries over uh, <coughs> covers over every single commandment. If you truly love someone, you're not going to do wrong to them. Absolutely. If you truly love God you're not going to value something higher than God. Absolutely. Did you have anything you want to add? It was going along with that really. It's just like if you're loving people correctly and you're loving God correctly only good things are going to come of that. Yeah, absolutely. You're not going to covet you're not going to steal. You're not going to commit adultery if you truly love those people. You're not going to you know, have something higher than God in your life if you love God. That's the idea. And so when, when we say love is the chief commandment, all the rest of them fall from that. Does that make sense? Like All of those things naturally flow out of that. And that's what's new in this new covenant, as you were pointing out, is that with the Holy Spirit teaching us how to love, then we can fulfill the law in that sense. Verse 8, whoever has 1 John 2, verse 8. And I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So we have John just coming off saying, this is an old commandment, and then he turns around and says, this is a new commandment. And you're like, wait... Hold on. The word new, kainan, is new in quality. Not necessarily in time, but there's a new quality to it. So he's giving, so there's definitively something old and established, but he's going to put a new spin on it. There's something, a new quality to what he's describing. True in him and in you is really the key phrase to unlocking what he means by this. So I want you to take a little trip to the Gospel of John in chapter 13. Let's, if you have your Bible, I don't have any verses. Actually, I do have some verses hand out, but just take a look at this. Um, so we're, this, we're walking into kind of a context where we're in the Last Supper, and he has just made Judas Iscariot 
the honored guest at the Last Supper. He's taken that infamous piece of bread and handed it to Judas, indicating that he would be the honored guest at this feast. So Jesus, even as Judas is exiting and you know doing his heinous duty, is still making him an honored, esteemed part, extending his love once more. Now when Judas has left, you hear a discourse begin by Christ on love in the upper room. Skipping down a little bit in this discourse, here is the new part, loving like Christ. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So how is what Jesus said in that verse different from the old commandment? Jesus said, love others as I have loved you. What's different from the Leviticus and Deuteronomy passages that we read a moment ago? Leviticus and Deuteronomy said, love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus tops that and said, love them as I have loved you. Yes. Follow my logic here. The old commandment was to love others as we love ourselves. But we do not always love ourselves perfectly. We, and I don't mean, I'm not referring to the self-love culture per se. What I'm referring to is we don't do what's best for ourselves and in our own best interest. If we really always loved ourselves perfectly, we would not be going out and doing sinful things because that's not in our best interest. But when Christ loves perfectly, he always did what was best for himself. And I don't mean that in a self-seeking sense. But what is best for you and I and for Christ is to be completely submitted to the will of God the Father. Following so far? Okay, so when Christ loved perfectly and he could extend love to others as he loved himself, he raised the bar far beyond where the Old Testament had put it because his love extended would always be perfect. And so... Thus, Christ, when he executed the commandment, raised it to a level that it had never been at before. The command to love was not new, but Christ's incredible self-sacrificial, perfect love gave it a new element, a new quality. Thus, the command has raised the bar to Christ's level, and that's what makes it new. Here's the new commandment, as John puts it. It is a new thing in him. It's new in him. These disciples were sitting arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Yet Jesus washes their feet and commands them to sacrifice just as he was about to on the cross. So this is how we retain this new element of it being in him. Now here's what's even more incredible in some ways. is It's not only new in him, but verse 8 says that it is new in us. Let's read verse 8 once more. Actually, maybe twice more, but we'll see. So it is new in him, and it's also new in us. John 14, 15 through 17. This is a very interesting passage, and I'm, I'm not sure I can explain this. There are numerous things in the remainder of this lesson that I'm not sure I can explain to its fullest extent. 
But there is certainly an emphasis in this passage that the Holy Spirit went from being with the disciples to coming in the future for them in the disciples. Luke 14, 15 through 17. Did you say Luke or John? I meant John, but I said Luke. <laughs> Thank you for knowing what I meant. So John 14, 15 through 17? Yes. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> I got confused. I was like, what? All right. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or, nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be in you. So there, some translations have it that he was with and then will be in. Which, again, I'm not here to explain everything about the transition from the Old Testament, uh, how the Holy Spirit interacted with figures in the Old Testament came on them for certain instances and you know the whole interesting style of that. But one thing is for certain that New Testament believers are possessors of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And here are some of the things that the Holy Spirit does for us. Romans 5, 5, Galatians 5, 22, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Romans 5, 5 first. Hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's very love, as John puts it a different way, has been shed abroad in our hearts as God has loved us through the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22, very first fruit of the Spirit. You only need the first word. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Absolutely. That's the pinnacle of the Holy Spirit's work, is love. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, look at what the Holy Spirit and what God, the Holy Spirit, had done in the Thessalonican believers as Paul addresses them. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Part of being a Christian is being taught by God himself how to love others, which is an incredible thought, um, that what is now second nature to Christians is love. And that's, that's what John's trying to get at here is this, the nature of Christians is love. I wanted to include this verse, so Ephesians three sixteen through 19. This is not that uh, though God does put this in us, it doesn't mean that we don't need to continually grow and develop in this. This is the sense in which, yes, we're instilled with love, but also, yes, we still need to grow in it. Paul recognizes that. Ephesians three sixteen through 19. with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So yes, we know the love of Christ. Upon salvation we have been instilled with that. But there's still a sense in which we need to grow in our understanding of breadth and height and depth and so on. So there's a sense in which it is always true of believers, yet there's still so much growth and sanctification for all believers in that area. Let's go back to John chapter 13 for a brief moment though. This is where we found that Christ has elevated this command, that he has now made it himself that is the standard. This is the first element that's a new quality. But listen to John 13, 35. This is where the in 
you part comes in in Jesus' discourse. John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So we have just come off of Christ saying that I'm raising the standard. In, in me, it is a new thing. And then he turns around and kind of gives the in you that John refers to later and says, what's going to be absolutely <coughs> the most amazing characteristic of all Christians and will be what you are known by is your love. So there's a sense in which it is new in him and in us. Thus, it can honestly be said that though love is an old commandment, there are new qualities about it because Christ raised the bar of what it means to love, commanded us to live that way, and then empowered us with the Holy Spirit to execute that command. That's the Holy Spirit's job is giving us that power to execute the commands to love as Christ has raised the bar to do so. So why has this new command, sorry, why has this portion of the old command happened? Um, This new portion of the old command happened, verse 8, once again. Yeah, the new portion of the old command, excuse me. So because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining, which is a very interesting reason to give for why there's a new element to an old love. That doesn't make a lot of sense initially. But who is the light? Matthew 4, 16 through 17. We have gone over this numerous times in the lesson on God being light. Um, But I think this passage will bring a little bit new insight to it. Who is this light and what is he doing? Think about that question as we're going through Matthew 4. People living in darkness have seen in a great day of light on those living in the land under the shadow of death. A light has dawned. from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So first, you have Christ being the light shining on men. That's the distinctive element of the prologue of John. And he reiterates it here, that a light has shined on all men. That's quoting from Isaiah, I believe. And so the light is Christ. And then the very first words out of Jesus' mouth about what he's doing Jesus, from that time forward, began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So this new capability to love is because Jesus has come and inaugurated the beginning of the kingdom of God inside of and among them. Luke 17, 20 through 21. Now having been questioned by Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. This is not an area in which I am an expert, but there appears, as John is hinting at, to be an overlap between the kingdom of darkness, this present age, and the future kingdom, kingdom of God, kingdom of light. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is amongst you. It's in you. So when Jesus comes, he inaugurates the beginning of the kingdom of light. Does that make sense? He, He begins preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. Yet, in the same breath, 
we are still in this present age, in the kingdom of darkness. So we see that there's a beginning of the kingdom of God. It has started. Christ broke the day on this. But the present age, the age of darkness, is still at hand. If you read back in verse 8 of 1 John here, chapter 2, it says, Again, a new commandment I write to you, which is true in him, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Absolutely. There are, there are many senses in which the kingdom of darkness is still at hand. We're still in this satanically controlled world. But Christ began the new kingdom when he came inside of us. Which is an incredible thought. And I don't claim to understand it. It really starts to dabble with some eschatology which, and times things, which I'm not especially familiar with. But check this. We have been delivered from the darkness of this present age, Galatians 1.4. So though we're still in the present age, we've been delivered from the present age. So you have this already not yet tension. It's already started, but not yet finished and not yet concluded. Galatians 1.4. Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So we've been rescued from this present evil age and given some powers of the kingdom to come. Hebrews 6 5. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. We have tasted of the powers of the age to come. What an interesting description. And that's, that passage is found in a description of when um, it's found in a, a conversation of apostasy of people who have be, kind of become Christians, tasted of the Holy Spirit, tasted of the powers of the age to come and have fallen away. That's a discussion for a different time. But that is one of the things that describes Christian community is that we have tasted We've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness, from this terrible evil age, and have been given part of the powers of the kingdom age to come. And so you have this tension where we have this new love that was inaugurated with Jesus, but we're still battling in this present age. The true light has shined. Christ is shining with his beginning here on earth, but we're still battling. We're still executing this new love that Christ has given us the capability to execute. Does that make a little bit of sense? I know, that was, I know that's complex. We've been given the power to overcome this present darkness because Christ's light has shined beginning with his coming to earth. That might be a little bit more concise way to say it. Um, just for a little bit of clarification, it appears based off of Matthew 24 that the present age will end at his second coming. That's just a tidbit for you to study later um, regarding some end time stuff. So here's the third part of this, verses 9 and 10. And this is, uh, I mean, there's really not much to say here in some sense. There's a little bit of application, but John is extremely, extremely straightforward in verses 9 through 10. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. 
So here's the test. Do you love or do you hate? Pretty straightforward. Um, the word hate, uh, missio, is properly to detest on a comparative basis, hence to denounce or to, um, to love someone or something less than someone or something. It's a very interesting way to define that word. Um, it's not... So, like, do you look at your friend and in comparison absolutely disdain them and compare it to someone else? Do you lack love for someone? I think, I think often when, I, when we discuss hatred towards other people, people are quick to say, no, 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 I've forgiven them. I don't hate them. Which I, I sincerely hope is true. But do you look at them and disdain them in comparison to your best friend? Now, I'm not saying we have to like everyone. I'm, I'm not going that far. But in a comparative basis to the people that you receive the most from, do you still harbor an absolute disdain and lack of care and lack of love for that person? It's a completely different way of thinking about hate than we would normally be accustomed to. We'd normally think of it as sort of a positive, like you're going, you're actively hating somebody. And instead, really hating somebody is just disdaining them in comparison to the people that you say you love. Luke 6, 32 through 36. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be the children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. If you love your friends, congratulations. What credit is that to you? They love you right back. You're really not putting yourself out there at all. What's really putting yourself out there is when you're definitely not on good terms with somebody, and yet you choose to love them, dare I say, in the same ways even as somebody that you would consider your best of friends. Again, that doesn't mean we have to just be like buddy-buddy with them. I understand that friendships end. I do. That happens. Life moves on. And that, that's not fun, but it happens. But that doesn't mean you, you can't still be self-sacrificing for them in some way. Doesn't mean you can't be praying from them, praying for them, excuse me. And so I want us to be careful to gauge our love as we think about these things, not necessarily on if you're buddy-buddy with a bunch of friends, but people that wrong you, that aren't going to do things in return for you, are you still willing to sacrifice yourself for them? That's a better metric of love. Go over to 1 Corinthians 13. Here's a really good way to test it. And I just found this um, just found this the other day. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians 13, classic chapter on describing love. I realize that. Almost over, nah, it's not overstated. I don't think it ever can be overstated. But 
here's a great way to test yourself. In, and I want you to think about somebody that may have wronged you. You may be right, by the way. They probably did wrong you. Tom freaking Brady. <laughs> <laughs> they probably distreated you. <laughs> but, but I want you to, every, every place that the word love is used in this intro to you know, this first bit of 1 Corinthians 13, I want you to take the word love and throw it out and put your name in there. Sam is patient, Sam is kind, Sam is, etc. Can you honestly say that that fits you? Does that describe you in context of the people that you really just can't stand or have really wronged you? I don't say that you have to like them. But are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to be patient? Are you willing to be kind, etc., etc., down that list? Verse 11, 1 John 2. 2.11, But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in that darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. If we habitually hate others, we do not know spiritual up from down, nor can we be assured that we are God's children. Second Peter 1, 9-10. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. In a different yet similar situation, John uses Isaiah to describe spiritual blindness. It's not so much that hate causes blindness, though it certainly can, I'd say all of us have experienced when hate can blind us in some sense. But rather, hate shows that someone is indeed spiritually blinded. It's a test. It's not the necessarily the thing that produces it, but it's, it's a red light flashing. If you're hating brother, again, all these tests, as we have discussed in the past, are habitual life patterns. This is not, of course, we all stumble into hating people. Yes. 1 John 2, 1 says that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Praise God for that. But if your life pattern is characterized by hateful disdain for others, then we should take an honest look if, uh, if it is genuine faith. Um, John 12, 35 through 40. This is an interesting passage. It's a little bit different context, but it's still John discussing spiritual blindness. John 12, 35 through 40. Then Jesus told them, You are going to have light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have been in the light, so that you may become children of light. When he has finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, there still would be not believe in him. This would not fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord who has believed our message and to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. For this reason we could not believe because uh, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that neither can see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Let's close with this instruction by Christ, Matthew 5, 21 through 24. 
You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Jesus says that if you hate your brother, Raka, you're in danger of hellfire and the judgment. And that, that is reflected right here in what John is teaching as well. And so what we're, what we're going to do, and there's papers coming around, we're going to have the opportunity to love each other a little bit. And not only love each other actionably, hopefully, but also working on expressing that love for others. Now, for the next 10 or 15 minutes, I want, so that we can um, accurate, like each of us and every person receive one, we're going to pick a prayer card off the wall and take it. And we're going to write a note to that person and love them, build them up, edify them, challenge them, tell what we truly think positively about them, whatever the case. But we're going to love them. The only we can pick anyone off the board, but I want to I want to say two things first. In keeping with Jesus' instructions, if you have something against someone here, somebody in this room that you have a problem with, thank you. Take their card first. Call dibs on their card, and write to them and make it right. Fix it. Agree with thine adversary quickly. If you have a gift before the altar, go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Before we go in service to God, we need to make things right with our brothers. And so if you are struggling with hate towards somebody in this group, write to them, figure it out, and make it right while you still have the chance to do that. Um, also, just for, for the purpose of this, don't make it anonymous. This is, sign your name so that you're accountable for expressing your love to other people and to develop a relationship with them. I know, I know that anonymity can be good and it can be a very humble thing, but in this case, I want us to practice truly expressing our feelings to other people when they know who it is. So if you have something against somebody, make sure you get their card, track it down, write an extra note, I don't care. Figure it out and make it right. Beyond that, pick somebody and let's, let's write to them and love them. Okay, let's grab a prayer card. Yeah, I'll card What? I'll do them soon. I'll fight Okay. Good night. Bye. 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 Bye.